God, we pray during this time as we study uh, your Son, the Messiah, may we just uh, walk away with something new, something we've never heard before, or something um, just stirring in our hearts. So when we leave, we're challenged by your Word and challenged just to, to look a little bit more like you and just to live our lives a little bit differently, to, just to, to become more like you. We pray for this time. We pray for um, the Spirit just to, to penetrate our hearts um, so we can be just moved in a way just to, um, to give you worthy, God. Show you that, give you praise and show you that you are worthy. Shame, I pray. Amen. All right, little disciples, you guys are dismissed. I meant to do that before the prayer. I apologize. That is kindergarten through third or fourth grade, something like that. Second grade, I'm kidding. Kindergarten through second grade. <clears throat> you guys go have fun, learn something. Kindergarten through second grade, you guys are gone. I see some adults leaving. I'm just kidding. You're taking your kids. I'm just kidding. Taking your kids. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to get on to you too bad. Good morning, church. My name is Ryan Reed. I am the student pastor here at Fannin, and I get the privilege to continue our series on Jesus Christ. We, every year, Doug does a series around this time of year looking at uh, when you're God the Father, when you're God the Son, and when you're God the Holy Spirit. And this year, it's Jesus, so we're going to be looking in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. You guys can go ahead and turn there about Jesus the Messiah. And it takes us a great day to dig into Scripture with you guys. I mean, this is a full house. I love it. We have one service today, and it's fantastic seeing all you guys, seeing all the new visitors and faces to support friends and family and baptisms and baby dedications. It's great to see you all this morning. Uh, if your family is anything like me, we, we typically eat our, our Thanksgiving meals mid-afternoon, and so there's a lot to cover about Jesus being the Messiah, and so I'm still pushing for that 2 p.m. Thanksgiving lunch with, with, with over there in the Fellowship Hall. Mark knows he's keeping things warm. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to preach that long. My wife would just get up and leave and, and go eat, um, which, and then you can follow her. That's fine. But our, our lives are filled with, with questions. Some of the questions that we're faced with are very mundane and just routine in our lives. Like, for instance, which cups hat am I going to wear today? That may not be a question you answer. It's a question I answer. I have like 30 of them. So which hat am I going to wear today? That's a question I have. Um, maybe a, a, a common question that nobody in our house seems to want to answer is, what do you want for dinner? Where do you want to go eat for dinner? Like that's a question nobody in our house seems like they want, they want to answer. Anybody else like that in your house? It, where am I going to go eat? Nobody wants to answer. Other questions could be, hey, where do you want to watch on TV? You know, where do you want to go on vacation what do you think of Bucky's? You know, these, these are questions that, that they don't have long-term importance on our lives. Maybe the last one about Bucky's, it, I think it does, really. But there's just some questions that are just very mundane and routine. But then there are questions in our lives that are unanswerable. Um, for instance, why do women open their mouths when they put on eye makeup? I don't know. Why do men refuse to stop and ask for directions? I don't know. If, if nothing ever sticks to Teflon, how do they make Teflon stick to the pan? I don't know. If you punch yourself and it hurts, are you weak or are you strong? I don't, I don't know. Or um, what would happen if Pinocchio said, my nose will grow? I don't know the answer to that question. That one just, just stumped me. These are questions that really do not matter in the least and ones we may never find the answer to. But there are some of life's questions that are just super terribly important. Will you marry me? What will, what will we name the baby? 
Doctor, what do these test results mean? Those are important questions that have lifelong implications and that they need answering. So it's incredibly vital that you carefully consider how you answer this question. Who do you say I am? So let me set the scene for you guys real quick. We're in the book of Matthew. Jesus and his disciples had just left Bethsaida. I have a a map up here for you. You see Bethsaida just right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they're headed to Caesarea Philippi. This part is a beautiful area of Israel. It's green. It's lush. um, It's just, it's gorgeous in that area. So they're headed this way. It's about a 25-mile journey. Um, In fact, so this, is, this actually is where the Jordan River begins, up there in Caesarea Philippi. It comes actually out of a, a, a cave in, on Mount Nebo. This is where the Jordan River begins. And it's early myth legend where uh, this cave is where the god Pan was born. We're going to get to him in just a few moments. But the further north that Jesus goes from Jerusalem from, and his disciples travel, the, the further away they get from the religious epicenter that is Jerusalem. And additionally, as they move north, they're also moving into a more, uh, into regions inhabited more by um, Gentiles, predominantly by Gentiles. So moving into a Gentile region, as well as further away from the Jewish religious epicenter, it, it meant a substantial increase um, in pagan idol worship. In fact, this, the city of Caesarea Philippi, it used to be called Paneus, again, which named it the, that Greek god Pan, a half man, half goat god who, who is famous for playing the flute, right? We, we kind of know that story. So the further north they went, away from Jerusalem, the more idol worship they saw. Even before it was called Peneus, it was called Baalinus, after the Canaanite worship of Baal. And it is believed that there have been at least 14 temples to false gods just in Caesarea Philippi alone. And then, of course, would include one to Baal, one to Pan, and one that Herod the Great built to Caesar Augustus, who had been declared to be a god, albeit by himself. And so speaking of Caesar Augustus, Herod the Great, he increased the size of Peneus in honor of Caesar Augustus. And later one of his sons, Philip the Tetrarch, changed the name of the growing city from Peneus to Caesarea Philippi, specifically to honor Caesar Augustus. There was even a huge gleaming marble temple built by Philip to honor Caesar. And citizens of this country were required to go to this temple and once a year grab a pinch of incense, put it onto a burning altar, and declare Caesar is Lord. They were required to do that. You may be asking yourself, why are you, why are you giving me all this information on the city of Caesarea Philippi? You know, it was, it was here in the city devoted to the worship of idols and man-made gods that Jesus chose as a place to make a full revelation of Himself to His disciples. It was also here that Simon Peter saw, I think, for the first time that Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God. And the more we understand the context of the life that they were living, the greater understanding and appreciation we'll have for God's Word. So just knowing a little bit of background information on this city, I think, just elevates this story just a little bit more for us. Because in my mind, there's little doubt in my mind, as they were walking from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, the talk was about idol worship. I mean, there, there's no doubt in my mind that this was part of the discussion. Jesus knew where they were headed. He knew what the city believed, the background of things, the history of it, and the darkness of idol worship. And including that discussion, my guess is that there were statements about there only being one living God. 
that all these false idols came from the imaginations of men, and none of these gods had a heartbeat. Simply put, they were dead, but the God of Israel. The God of Israel was the one true God, and He was alive, and He was actively at work in the lives of mankind. So with this backdrop of, of idol worship, Jesus wanted, I think, to get an indication of how much His disciples knew of the heartbeat of the people of Israel. And what were they saying about His identity? Who, who did they believed Him to be? In the three synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the twelve disciples identified four different prophets. Now, and like any good rabbi would do, he asked questions. So he asked them the question, who do people say that I am? So let's look in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13 together. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah and, or one of the prophets. All right, we're going to stop right there for just a quick second. So disciples were throwing out some names that they have heard Jesus been called. Herod Antipas, he believed Jesus to be a reincarnated John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded based on a promise that he made to his stepdaughter during a drunken party. Jesus was doing things in similar ways as to that of John the Baptist. People thought Jesus, the, the reincarnated John the Baptist, was there to announce the coming ministry of the Messiah. Of course, they didn't believe Jesus could be the Messiah because in their eyes, the Messiah would have to be a powerful political and military leader who would lead a revolt to overthrow the Roman Empire. Others in that passage uh, thought him to be Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who was known to do incredibly miraculous things, including the raising of the dead. Additionally, Malachi wrote in, in Malachi 4 or 5, that God would send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. They believed that to be the first coming of the Messiah, in other words, He would introduce the Messiah, whom again they thought would be a powerful political military leader. Uh, we see this truth played out every spring in the, in the fourth cup of the Passover, the Seder meal. They, they see, believe this truth of Elijah coming. They leave the fourth cup empty in the hopes of Elijah coming. They also mention a guy named Jeremiah. He was the last prophet before the Babylonian captivity, and in fact, he prophesied about the upcoming captivity. <clears throat> Jewish legend <clears throat> said that directly before Babylon captured Jerusalem, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and hid them on Mount Nebo in order to preserve them from desecration uh, and destruction by the, by the Babylonians. And some Jews believe that before the Messiah came to establish His kingdom, Jeremiah would return and restore the ark and the altar to their proper places in the temple. Again, like the others, he would come directly before the Messiah. However, Jeremiah would have never touched the ark of the covenant. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the law was very clear. Only men from the Levite tribe could transport the ark of the covenant. And there were very specific guidelines as to how that was to be done. To touch the ark meant instant death. Just ask the Jewish soldier Uzzah who attempted to study the ark when it was being hauled by oxen. I mean, he can't. He, he died on the spot because he touched the ark, right? Jeremiah knew better than to touch the ark. He also knew that God didn't need his assistance in preserving anything felt, that God felt to be precious. And then the rest of the people didn't attempt to identify Jesus with any specific prophet. 
But they did recognize, I believe, Jesus' uniqueness, and they figured Him to be one of the other prophets risen again. Because you look at Him, like, like Moses, Jesus declared the law of God, right? Like Isaiah, Jesus preached about sacrifice and holiness. Like Daniel, the message of Jesus was a prophetic message of a coming king and his kingdom. Like Hosea, Jesus loved the unlovable and was willing to redeem lost, wretched sinners. He could be any one of these prophets risen again. But the one thing all these characters had in common is that they were all precursors to the coming Messiah. So in their minds, they were absolutely certain that Jesus could not be the Messiah. So after hearing all of their answers, he shifts gears, and in verse 15, he, he says this. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is it. This is the moment of truth for his disciples. Everything Jesus had taught them and shown them has been leading up to this moment in time. Every miracle was leading up to this moment. Every word of truth that Jesus spoke was bringing his disciples to this great spiritual crossroad. And their response to this question will let Jesus know how effective his personal ministry to these men had been. This is a simple question, but it is filled with eternal implications for us. Peter, always the one to answer first, uh, and was seemingly the spokesperson of the group in verse 16 says, I'm a Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, based on how quickly he answered, we get the idea that this was something that was frequently maybe discussed among the twelve. And they had come close to this full declaration in the past, and when in John 6, 68 and 69, they concluded him to be the Holy One of God. If you remember at the very beginning, when, when Jesus' ministry is kind of starting, Andrew went and found his brother Peter and said, hey, I found the Messiah. And later when Jesus was calmed the sea by just speaking, peace, be still, they said, who is it that even the wind and the sea obey. But they never had fully put these two together until now. And then in Caesarea Philippi, again, that backdrop of paganism and false religion, Peter saw in a humble, homeless carpenter from Nazareth, God in the flesh. Peter looked at Jesus and saw the Messiah, which is the word Christ. That's what that word means. It's a title. It's not a name. It literally means the anointed one. And Peter also saw Jesus as the Son of God. What a statement of faith from Peter. This is rather astounding as one reflects on this declaration of, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus of Nazareth did many miracles in Israel, yet He's more than a prophet. He taught many beautiful truths to the people, yet He is more than just an exalted rabbi. Peter affirms that he believes Jesus is the promised Messiah and all that goes with the understanding of the calling and mission of the coming Messiah. The Messiah was to have a unique relationship with the Father as the divine Son, as described in Psalm 2 and Proverbs 30 and several other places throughout the Old Testament. It's vital to point out if Peter was incorrect, right? So Jesus asked this question, Peter gave his answer. If Peter was incorrect, don't you think Jesus would have said something to him, right? That would just make sense. Logically thinking, Jesus would have been like, no, that's, you're, you're off base there. That's not what happened. Jesus let the statement stand, but He rewards Peter for His accurate declaration. Peter said to be blessed because no human being revealed this to him. 
In fact, it's a spiritual revelation from the Father in heaven, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So I have another question for you. What, what do you know about the Jewish Messiah? This is what this is, the, Jesus the Messiah. Why was Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah a big deal? So we're going to kind of look at the, spend the remainder of the time, we're going to examine some Old Testament texts together about who Jesus, Jewish people believed the Messiah was going to be and how Jesus fulfilled those truths and those teachings, proving that He was, in fact, the Messiah. So when the time comes and you're asked, who do you say I am, you can have an answer ready like Peter. So know the character of, of history, Caesar or Gladstone or Shakespeare or any other person you can think of, ever dreamed of saying the Bible or any other book, as Jesus did in John 5, search the Scriptures for they testify of me. No other person in history can say, has the audacity to say, search the Scriptures, they testify of me, except Jesus. Nor has any false Christ ever appealed to fulfilled prophecy to vindicate His claims. Because if you read through Jewish history, you'll see that more than 40 false messiahs have appeared in, in their history. And not one of the false messiahs ever appealed to fulfill prophecy to establish His claims of being the Messiah. Rather, they, they bolstered their fake claims by promises of revenge and, and by flatteries which gratified national vanity. And now, except to a few students of history, the remembrance of their names has perished from the earth, while Jesus of Nazareth, the true Messiah who fulfilled all the prophecies, is worshipped by hundreds of millions. Once again, we're reminded that Jesus did not come to start a new religion, but to fulfill the ancient promises that God gave to Israel. And Peter's understanding was that Jesus is the promised Messiah sent from our God. Right? Someone has to be the, has to be the Messiah, correct? Right? This is, someone has to be the one spoken of. When it comes down to it, a similar, similar revelation based on the clear descriptions of the Hebrew Scriptures is needed for anyone else, anyone today, to understand the full identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Because the most amazing drama that ever was presented to the mind of man a drama written in prophecy in the Old Testament and in biography in our four Gospels of the New Testament is the narrative of Jesus Christ. One outstanding fact among many completely isolates Him. It's this, that one man only in the history of the world has had explicit details given beforehand of His birth, His life, His death, and resurrection that these details are in documents given to the public centuries before He ever appeared, and that no one challenges or can challenge that these documents were widely circulated long before His birth, and that anyone and everyone can compare for himself or herself the actual records of His life with those ancient documents and find that they match one another perfectly. The challenge of this pure miracle is that it happened concerning one man in the whole history of the world, this is the Messiah. So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. God had just created the world, and in it, mankind, right? He was told that they could eat from anything in the garden, this beautiful garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? We know the story, right? This is plenty to school whenever you're a little kid. As you and I know, they, they, they instead listen to a snake. They eat from the, the fruit, and, and, and evil and death and sin entered into our world. In Genesis chapter 3, God makes an interesting promise regarding 
the snake. It says this, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here God is telling them that someone is going to come in the future, a a son of Eve, and this guy is going to come, and he's going to crush this serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. This is a very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just kind of left hanging in this story here in Genesis 3. So the next key moment of the story, when God singles out this guy named Abraham, it says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all the nations of the world, right? As we follow this family of Abraham, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives a promise in Genesis 49, 10 through 12, that a king will come from his line, that the whole world is going to follow this king. And he's going to bring peace and harmony. There will be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards, and this is going to be awesome. The first king we come across who's from this line of Judah is King David. The dude's a hero. You read through the Old Testament, you see the stories of what he did. He is a national hero. They still have his tomb. You can go see it and, and walk by it there in Israel. I mean, he is he's the man, right? This guy is the man. As you read, Dave, you know, you, maybe you think, man, maybe this guy, he, he's going to be the snake crusher. Look what he's done, the things he's done for Israel. He is going to be the snake crusher. But as you read David's story, you realize that this, he is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. However, God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, that his king, that this king is going to eventually become from his own lineage. As you read the scriptures, you realize quickly that each successive king in this lineage is also infected with sin and evil, and they just mess up a lot. Eventually, the empire of Babylon crushes Jerusalem deporting the Judeans to Babylon, thus ending the, the kingly line of David. And all hope seems lost. And these guys that are prophets, they come on the scene. They just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come. He's going to defeat evil, and he's going to restore the garden. That's Isaiah 42. Zechariah 9.9 talks about the coming king, how people will be rejoicing over the one who is riding on a donkey. Does that sound familiar? Deuteronomy 18 speaks of a coming prophet like Moses. Zechariah 13.7 says that this prophet will be God's equal. That's kind of a big deal, be God's equal. Isaiah 11.1 speaks of the Messiah being the rod out of the stem of Jesse. Isaiah 61 is a verse that has kind of historically thrown the Jewish people especially those in the time of Jesus, off the scent of who the Messiah would be. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Does that passage sound familiar to you guys? This is a passage in Luke 4 when Jesus stands up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, gets a scroll, opens it, and that's what he reads. 
this passage caused many people to believe the Messiah would be the one like with military might, to overthrow the oppressing government, who, of course, at this time were the Romans. And Jesus didn't fit this view of who they thought the Messiah was to be. But that doesn't mean He was not the Messiah. He just, rather, He's not their version of who the Messiah was supposed to be. But there's one specific prophet, Isaiah. He tells us more about why this king was supposed to be bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back. And Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. Uh, that's in Isaiah 53. I encourage you guys to check that out sometime this week and just be blown away how much that chapter points at Jesus. So we get to the end of the Old Testament. And this king and this snake crusher never shows up. This is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to some guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, we see that Jesus comes from the line of David and then Judah, then Abraham. Before I looked at those passages a while ago. I preached on this family tree just a few weeks ago. Jesus goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And He begins confronting the effects of, of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins. You know, many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. In Matthew 16, 21-25, just a few verses past our main text from today, Jesus is beginning to tell His closest followers, His disciples, that He was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil unto himself. So it seems like the serpent wins after he bites the heel of Jesus. But you and I know that is not the end of the story. Jesus rose from the dead and now has a power over evil and death for himself. And in the rest of the New Testament is in making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to you and I to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. So after His resurrection, the Lord gave His disciples the key that unlocks Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. In Luke 24, it says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This great statement is a summary of His teaching during the 40 days that He ministered to His disciples between His resurrection and His ascension. The Jews of His day, and to this day, they looked for a triumphant reigning Messiah, and they failed to see from their own Scriptures that Christ must suffer for the sins of the world before entering His glory. We read over the book of Acts one of the last things Jesus says to His disciples in Acts 1.8, it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But even with the Holy Spirit's help, death and sin and evil, there's still a real problem in our world today. But I've read the end 
of the book, God wins. He destroys the snake once and for all, and He restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. The coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New, His birth, His character, His work, His teachings, His sufferings, His death, His resurrection, the grand central themes of the Bible. Christ is the bond that ties the New Testament together. The Old Testament is in the New Testament, the Old Testament is in the New revealed, the New Testament is in the Old concealed. This is who, it all points to Jesus. If we were to take time and pour over the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament that He fulfilled, we would be here until 2 o'clock, like I said, we were, but we're not going to. You're welcome. Like this whole book, you can see how nice and thin it is. Uh, these, these, these are the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled. This is 500 pages. It's a lot of stuff that He fulfilled. So there are over 300 prophecies concerning His first coming. What would the odds be of someone fulfilling eight of these? Let's say the Messiah was, born, was to be born in Bethlehem, right? We know that from Micah 5, 2. In Zechariah 11, it talks about the Messiah being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Psalm 22, Messiah's clothes would be gambled away. And also in that same chapter, Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 34, Messiah's bones would not be broken. Isaiah 37, Messiah would be born in the tribe of Judah. Hosea 11, Messiah would be called from Egypt. Isaiah 53, Messiah would be buried in a rich man's grave. All of those things are things that Jesus fulfilled. And looking at that list, there's not a whole lot He could do about a lot of these. Like, He had no control over where He was to be born, right? He has no control over that. He has no control over um, growing up in, in Egypt. He had no control of, of being born in the tribe of Judah. These are things He has no control over, yet they were fulfilled. So the odds, people that are much smarter than me at math and statistics and things came up with these numbers. So these are the odds of, of fulfilling eight of these 300 plus. We took the entire state of Texas, which is, you know, pretty big, and we filled it with 100 trillion silver dollars. That's enough silver dollars to fill the state of Texas two feet deep. We grab one, we mark a big X on it, we put it inside, and we shuffled, I don't know how you would shuffle that, but you would shuffle all those silver dollars in the state of Texas. You reach down and you grabbed one and picking out the right one. That's the odds of someone fulfilling eight of these prophecies, not the 300 plus. You know, figuring the odds of fulfilling all 300 Bible prophecies is ridiculously astronomical. I can't begin to think of numbers that big, probably because they don't really exist. I don't know. But the truth is, the real author of these prophecies, he knew the future. So here we are this morning. My challenge is to maybe read Isaiah 53 and some of these other places, Psalm 22, and see where it speaks of the coming Messiah. Read through the prophets if you've never given those a chance. And just see the connections between those prophecies and Jesus. When faced with the question, who do you say that I am? What is your answer? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? of God.
The way you answer this question, it's going to have eternal implications on your life. Don't leave here today without knowing how you would answer that question. If you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ, I'd love to talk to you. I'll make sure they save you food. I promise you, you'll get to eat. Don't leave here without dealing with what God is doing in your heart this morning. Take a, a couple quick moments to pray. I encourage us to pray in your own heart for a moment and just of how you would answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Just a few moments of prayer, then I'll close us here in just a second. God, we are grateful that you sent your Son on our behalf, that you sent him to be the fulfillment of all these prophecies and things about him, that we know he is truly the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. God, if anyone is here this morning and they're not sure, they believe that or they, they know you to be the Messiah, may they come and just talk and just rest with that this morning and just see the truth that you are the Messiah. God, we pray for this time as we... Um, you're ready to go eat together. God, I pray you, you uh, bless food to nourish our bodies and just the fellowship and the community together as we are the family of Fannin uh, this morning. I pray as we leave here um, and go um, our separate ways after, after lunch that we just um, continue just to wrestle with your word and just to see how we would answer that question of who do you say that I am. In your name I pray. Amen. So we have a few announcements for you. We have, uh, where's Carter? I need Carter up here. This Carter, he was.